Welcome to Candidates of Liberty, a special series from Lions of Liberty dedicated to spotlighting libertarian candidates across the country. If you enjoy our work, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. Hey, everyone. Welcome to our newest show here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is Candidates of Liberty, and this is your host, John Odermatt. And you'll notice here on this show, we have a bit of a rotating hosting format here. We have myself hosting. We have Mark Clare. We have Brian McWilliams. It's going to depend on uh, which candidate we're talking to. We're going to rotate this around a little bit. Uh, The vision for this show came about after the Libertarian National Convention. We realized there were just too many good libertarian candidates out there. So there's too many good people to talk to, and we're talking to them. We're we're giving them their time, and we want to make sure that Message of Liberty has an opportunity to be spread. So my guest today, my first interview here on the Candidates of Liberty podcast is with Roger Barris. Roger, welcome to Candidates of Liberty. Well, thank you very much, John. Thank you for, first off, thank you for creating this uh, this uh, podcast. And then second, and secondly, thank you for having me on. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And this is new for me, but something that uh, Mark does on his show, we're going to do it on this show, is I'm supposed to ask my guest if you're ready to roar for liberty. So, so Roger, are, are you ready to roar? I'm, I'm ready to roar for, for liberty. <laughs> you know, the good news is I live far away from anyone else, so I won't be too embarrassed. But yeah, I'm ready to roar. Okay, fa- fantastic, Roger. And let's get started really at the beginning here. The beginning as, as a libertarian, what made you become a libertarian? Where did that, uh, where did that fire, where did that flame get ignited? Well, it was, you know, for, for, you know, there's a lot of libertarians. It's really the same thing. It's a book we read, right? And in my case, it was a book by, uh, it was a book by David. It wasn't, it wasn't Ayn Rand. It wasn't, uh, it was a book by David Friedman, who was actually the son of Milton Friedman, entitled The Machinery of Freedom, uh, which a friend of mine gave me when I was 17 years old. Until then, I was kind of fashionably liberal. And, uh, and he gave me this book and I realized, wow, this makes a tremendous amount of sense. And then I went on to uh, I went on to college and I studied economics. And like I always say that if you if you start off as a libertarian and then if you study economics, it just makes you more libertarian. So that was really the foundation for me. And then um, and then I ran for the Libertarian Party as a candidate for the first time when I was 22 years old, which I'm sad to say was a long time ago. So you ran when you were 22. And what what office was that for back then? That was for a, uh, for, I think, state Senate. Um, I, I actually need to take a look at it again, because after the polls closed, my mother snuck back to the polling booth and said, hey, look, this is my son. Can I have a copy of the paper, the paper ballot? So I've got it here somewhere. Oh, that's awesome. And you're running again, obviously. You're running for Congress and you're running in the second district. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. The second district here in Colorado. So why did you decide to run and, and why did you decide to, to run for Congress? Well, I think, you know, I, I, first off, I have a bit of an unusual history. So I actually lived in Europe for most of my adult life. Uh, and uh, I, But I always knew I would come back to America. And I always knew I wanted to run for the Libertarian Party because, you know, I really, really believe that uh, in these ideals. I really believe that this is the way forward for our country. And the reality is, you know, I mean, a lot of I know a lot of people who don't think much of the political process, but the reality is 
as I always say, is that even if you're not interested in the government, the government is interested in you. Absolutely. Uh, so, uh, so the only way that we're going to, you know, see a world which we want to see is that if uh, if we get involved in what is a very dirty process that a lot of us really dislike, but we have to start doing it. Yeah, I, I like that. It, it really doesn't. I like the way you phrase that. A lot of people are apathetic. I used to be apathetic to to politics up until recently, until I joined the Libertarian Party. And I came to realize, especially with regards to, to the Libertarian Party, and I think a lot more people, a lot more libertarians are starting to realize this, that the Libertarian Party is is what we make it. And really, politics are really a product of of us, the people who are who run for office, who work on campaigns, who have these podcasts to, to interview uh, people running for office. We can drive the message, and um, it seems to me that more libertarians are, are waking up to that. So that is a that's a very good thing. Yeah, you know, I think you know, you know, like all of us, you know, read these polls, right? And like the Gallup, the famous Gallup polls, for example, and you know, the Gallup polls show that if you really look at people and you look at their stands on different issues, you know, social issues, economic issues, etc. You know, I think we are the largest single group of people in the country, um, and we have to get in there. We have to get into the uh, to the political pro- process to mobilize those people, and it's going to require uh, it's going to require us to do that. So you're running for Congress in the second district. I assume you have a Democrat and Republican opponent. Can you can you tell us a little bit about them? Maybe uh, what are some of the issues that you're that you're targeting them on? Yeah, sure. Okay, so um, I do uh, I do have a Democrat and Republican opponent. I should say as well, the second district is a very blue district. It has been blue since 1975. There hasn't been a Republican candidate since 19 or a Republican representative since 1975. Okay, and I actually think that's kind of a good thing because, as you know, a lot of people believe in in libertarian policies, but at the end of the day, we always have to deal with the tactical voter question which is like, oh, you know, I, you know, I agree with what you're saying, but on the other hand, I really hate what the Democrat is saying or what the Republican is saying, and therefore I have to vote tactically, or otherwise I'm going to be stuck with something that I really hate. The good news is in my district, the Republican is a non-entity. So, you know, so you don't have to worry about, oh boy, if I vote for the Libertarian, then I'm just going to be electing the Democrat, okay? Because, mm-hmm. you know, the Republican is not a contender anyway. I actually think that in this district, it's a two-horse race between the Democrat and me. So I think that's part of the message. And, and some of the message I give to, particularly you know, when I'm talking to Republican audiences, is that, look, you know, we may not agree on everything, um, because largely because you guys are wrong about some stuff, but, but we may not agree on everything. But I am the best chance you have of somebody, getting, of somebody who's liberty-minded getting elected. So that's my major message to, uh, you know, to Republican audiences. And the major way that I try to distinguish myself from the Republican candidate is I am actually a much more viable candidate than he is, um, because I think largely the Republicans have given up on this district. For the Democrat, my Democratic opponent is a classic progressive. Uh, he is a very progressive guy. He ticks all the progressive boxes. And so what I hammer away with him in addition to, uh, you know, in addition to some other issues, but what I hammer away with him is like, okay, you know, you, uh, you want free college, you want Medicare for all, you know, I want a pony for Christmas, you know, how are we going to pay for all of these things? Mm-hmm. You, know, you probably saw that today we had, uh, we had a study come out, which basically indicates that, you know, Medicare for all will cost $32.6 trillion 
over the next 10 years. Now, to put that in, in to give you an idea of that, mm-hmm. the total U.S. federal taxes are something that, so that's roughly three, over three trillion per year. The total U.S. federal taxes are about three trillion. All right. Which means that just like we saw when whenever the states tried to have a single payer put in place, it roughly means a doubling of taxes. And what I always say about my my Democratic opponent is, you know, and I lived in Europe for a long time. I always say to them, look, if you want European style policies, then why, why don't we take a look at the way that Europe funds them? And the only way you cannot pretend that we're just going to put some taxes on those nasty one percenters. OK, the nasty one percenters, their cumulative wealth is two point seven trillion dollars. So if we go in there with guns, take away all of their wealth and liquidate it, that doesn't even pay for one year of Medicare for all. Right. The yeah. only way, the only way to pay for all of these programs in Medicare for all is crushing middle class taxes. And that's the one thing these guys never tell the truth about. And so that is a lot of what I'm hammering him on is the fact that, you know, you what you're proposing, you know, even Medicare for all is crushing middle class taxes. Add on to that free college, my pony for Christmas, and we are talking about devastating taxes. And that's the honest answer that they will never talk about. And then the other thing I hammer my Democratic, sorry, the other thing I hammer my Democratic opponent on is, you know, this guy is 34 years old. This is the fifth office he's either run for or had. I usually say to him, look, you know, Joe, you you have been running for one office or another since you got out of diapers, man. You know, the only the only you know, you are you are the perfect example of so much of what is wrong with Washington in the fact that we have this professional political class, which is completely out of touch, which is only dedicated to getting reelected. And for all of these reasons, we have to avoid that. I, for example, have signed the the pledge for term limits. And I go with him by saying, Joe, are you going to sign? And of course, the answer is no, because this guy is lining up at the trough for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. And those are exactly the type of people we cannot have in our government. Absolutely. Now, so here's some, uh, well, not quick hitter questions, but maybe, uh, maybe it's a little bit rapid fire questions. So what are three things that you would eliminate, um, once elected? Three things I would eliminate. Okay. Um, the, well, the first, well, three things I would eliminate is number one, I would stop being the world's policeman. Okay. And, and, and that would allow me to eliminate, I would guess somewhere between a quarter probably a, a good quarter of the military budget. That's number one, okay? But the only way we can eliminate that is if we if we redefine the task of the military. The task of the military should be to defend America, not police the world, mm-hmm. and then we can start cutting the military cost dramatically. That's number one. Another thing I would eliminate in, immediately is I would get rid of the Department of Education instantly. You know, Thomas Massey had a one-line bill that put the Department of Education is hereby terminated. You know, that's what we need. There's absolutely no reason why the federal government should be involved in education, period. How, how would you that hey, this isn't really rapid fire. I'm going to ask a question. How, how would you sell that to say, since you're in a blue, a blue district there, how would you sell that to progressives? I think the way I would sell it to progressives, I mean, one of the things I, you know, the, the one good thing that's coming out of the world of Donald Trump is that it is has meant for progressives have rediscovered the virtues 
of the Tenth Amendment, and they've also rediscovered the virtues of controlling an imperial presidency. So the way I would point this out is, first off, is that, you know, the Department of Education was created in 1979, okay? Do you really think education has improved since 1979? Most people would say it's deteriorated, right? That's the first thing. But the other thing is, I would say, take those 70 billion, return those to the taxpayers, return that to the state, and let the states decide. Because I am a huge believer, one of my campaign pledges is that I want to create a federal government so small that we don't have to fight over it anymore. And one of the ways that we go about doing that is by letting states go their separate ways. And so if, you know, if, if California, you know, wants to create the People's Republic of California, I say, God bless, you know, leave the rest of us alone. You will make an excellent bad example for the rest of us. So that's part of the way I, I try to sell these policies to them is to say, look, you know, California, for example, is the seventh or sixth largest economy in the world. There's absolutely no reason if they want to set up these crazy policies, there's absolutely no reason why they can't do it. Likewise, Colorado, you know, we should bring all these things home. We can increase accountability. We can force states to compete against each other. We can allow the states to be, you know, to be laboratories of experimentation. Let's bring it home. We don't need Washington telling us how to run our schools. We know that much better than they do. Absolutely. I, I like a slogan that I'm the campaign man- manager for Dale Kearns. He's running for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. And his slogan is make education local again. You can steal that. You can use it if you want to. OK, well, well I, will, I will. I As long as he doesn't have a little TM next to it. So you're you're good to go. You're good to go. So what's what's the last thing that you would eliminate or reduce or abolish or? Well, I mean, the obvious thing is, please, please, let's let's get a copy of Schedule One to the Controlled Substances Act and strike cannabis marijuana. I mean, you know, here we are in Colorado, and this goes back to the same theme, right? Here we are in Colorado. We were the first state to legalize uh, marijuana, you know, both for medical and recreational purposes, and yet, you know, our entrepreneurs are still harassed by the federal government. They still struggle to find a bank who will work with them. They still struggle to find insurance companies who will work with them. You know, they still have to carry around tons of cash, which is risky and uh, everything else, because we have this idiotic federal law. So, I mean, we've got to strike, get rid of that immediately. And then once again, let the states do what they want. You know, this is such a no-brainer that, you know, it's, it's and, and this will, conversely, within five years, this will happen. I mean, people, you know, the Libertarian Party has been on the cutting edges of this since 1972. The rest of the world is finally catching up to us. There's a chance it could happen uh, before your election here, I think. Really? I, maybe, I, maybe. I, I'm... Probably not, but I think there's a, there's a slim chance that I, Trump could, or at least before 2020, I should say, that Trump could try to take it off the table so the progressives can't come in and, and run on that. But well, I, don't I mean, know. I, I, mean uh, I mean, the good news is that Jeff, Stash, Jeff Sessions is in such the is in such such a Trumpian doghouse that yeah, maybe it's possible. <laughs> but but Jeff Sessions, for example, of all you know, the, the Trump administration has done some good things. Jeff Sessions is on the opposite side of the ledger. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. So, Roger, last question I have for you. Um, 
Obviously, there are a couple of libertarian positions out there that might be a little controversial or might be things that maybe not every libertarian is on board with. So is there one libertarian position or viewpoint that you don't know if you're fully on board with, that you don't fully agree with? Okay. Well, that's a great, uh, that's a great question, John. The, um, I would say that probably the position I'm, I'm uh, not, well, not probably, definitely the position I'm not on board with is open borders. Um, so, which I think is still the, uh, still part of the uh, Libertarian Party platform. What I am on board with is a very generous immigration policy because I firmly believe that strong immigration is helpful, not just to the people coming in, but also the people in the country. So, for example, I want an H-1B visa program, which is, you know, as you know, is the visas for highly skilled people. I want to expand that virtually without limit. I mean, I think it is absolutely criminal the way that we educate some of the greatest minds in the world. And I think you know that something like 70 percent of the students we have who are, who are pursuing, you know, uh, doctoral degrees in, in uh, science and technology come from abroad. So we educate them in our great universities, and then we do everything possible to chase them out. And I think this is madness. These people, you know, add tremendous value to our economies. They're extremely entrepreneurial. Something like one third of all the technology companies in the country have been started by immigrants. So we should do everything possible to encourage these highly skilled, highly entrepreneurial workers instead of chasing them out. And the important thing to realize is that the Trump administration claims that they're only against illegal immigration. This is bullshit. They are doing everything possible to make it difficult for legal immigration, too. So, you know, for example, it used to be quite easy to renew your H-1B visa. Now they're making it very, very difficult. You know, they have terminated the program where people could come into the country who promised to invest a large amount of money and start new companies. They've terminated that program. We need to go in the exact opposite. We need to do like Canada, Australia, uh, New Zealand. We need to encourage these people. At the opposite end of the spectrum, we need a robust guest worker program like we used to have with Mexico. It used to be called Bracero, and it was an easy program for seasonal and temporary workers to come into the country and do things like agricultural work construction work, et cetera, where we have really great shortages throughout the country. So we should revive that type of program along with the idea of, you know, if, if someone comes in on that basis, if they do a good job, if they pay their taxes, if they have no criminal activity, then there should be a path to citizenship for those people as well. But I am not willing to just throw the borders open as a lot of libertarians want. We need to have controlled immigration. And I would say in particular, as you know, I lived in Europe for a long time. We've had an experiment going on in places like Germany with open borders over the last couple of years. It would be madness for us to make an irreversible decision about opening our borders until we know the results of the experiment that's taking place in Europe right now. Because as I said, that decision is irreversible. So let's see what happens in a place like Germany. Let's see how that works out. And then we can consider open borders down the road. But there's no way we should be doing that now. Right. And with the uh, with the current welfare state we have here in the United States, just having complete open borders, that's that's problematic for sure. Um, that would be problematic. And the other thing, too, and this is the other lesson we're learning from Europe, is just the political backlash from open borders is absolutely toxic. 
So even if you thought it was good in every other respect, the reality is that, you know, if you, uh, there's a recent poll that was done in every European country. They asked them what the biggest issues were in their country. Every major country said immigration. So even if you thought in every other respect that open borders make sense, you have to count on the fact that I'm sorry, but the rest of the population is not ready for it. And that's another, you know, we have to be conscious of the fact that, you know, libertarians, there are a lot of us, but we're not everyone. And we have to be conscious of that as well. Yeah, good point. Good point. What a little side question for you on that, because you said something interesting. And I was having a conversation with a friend on Facebook this past week about this. There are so many legal immigrants who own businesses, who own you know, gas stations or dry cleaners or fast food restaurants. Why do you think so many immigrants are sort of attracted to entrepreneurship? Do you have a, a theory on that? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I mean, for, there's really two reasons. Number one is that don't forget immigrant populations, and this, and this has been true in America for a long time, are self-selected to be more adventuresome. I mean, if you leave your home country and go to a different country where maybe you don't speak the language or you speak it badly, et cetera, this is a way of you basically saying, hey, I'm, you know, you know, Donald Trump famously said Mexico is not sending their best people over. That's the opposite of the truth. Actually, we are actually probably getting the best people from a lot of these countries because they are the most adventuresome. They are the risk takers. They are the entrepreneurs. That's one, uh, that's one reason. The other reason is because a lot of entrepreneurs, because of their language skills or, for other, or because of their educational background, and don't forget a lot of degrees that you have from foreign countries aren't immediately accepted in our country or some kind of pre professional accreditation. So they can't get the normal job that they used to have in their native country. And one way, if you can't be hired, one way to deal with that is to become your own boss. And so that's another reason why they tend to be entrepreneurial. As you know, they are, uh, as you know, immigrants are much more entrepreneurial than Native Americans. And this has been a big source of dynamism in our economy. Our level of entrepreneurship for other reasons, largely related to the government, is falling. One of the few things that's keeping it up, that's making our economy dynamic, is the fact that we still allow immigrants to come in. It would be disastrous if we choked off this supply. We should be doing the opposite. We should be making it easier. Yeah, and also the immigrants don't go through, or some of them, they don't at least fully go through our uh, our public school system that trains people to be drones and work in factories and take orders and things like that. Uh, yeah, you're you're <laughs> ab you're absolutely no, that's absolutely true as well. Which is, uh, but that's a whole other subject. Yeah, we, we don't want to go down that road, <laughs> R Roger. I want to thank you so much for coming on. I just want to give you the opportunity to talk about uh, where people can find more info on your campaign, where to donate, where to see your, I know you just released a new video, so where they can find that stuff. Yeah, sure. Well, multiple places. Um, I would say probably the best place right now is on Facebook. And my Facebook page, which is Barris, B-A-R-R-I-S, for the number four Congress. So that's probably the best place. If you really want details about my policy positions, et cetera, in glorious detail, then you can go to my campaign website, which is also barrisforcongress.com. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter, not surprisingly, under the Twitter handle, Barris for Congress. So that's B-A-R-R-I-S for the number four Congress. 
I haven't taken donations so far because I wanted to put a lot of my own money into the campaign before I asked others to do so. But I am going to start taking donations shortly. And the best place would be on my campaign website. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with the Lions of Liberty audience. Well, listen, thank you for uh, inviting me and, uh, and keep up the great work. All right. Thanks, Roger. Take care. That is a wrap of my interview with Roger Barris. I want to be uh, very brief here since I've gone over my time very, very significantly. So I'm just going to say a couple things. If this is your first time hearing the Lions of Liberty podcast. We do have three other shows on this feed. We have a Monday show that uh, airs every Monday, our longest running show, our flagship program hosted by Mark Clare. Uh, where Mark interviews leaders in the Liberty Movement, a Wednesday show called Electric Liberty Land, a weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty, hosted by Brian McWilliams. And every Friday, Felony Friday, a look at the broken criminal justice system, hosted by myself, John Odermatt. So make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google or Overcast or whatever you uh, use to listen to your podcast to get those in your feed. And uh, we thank you for listening to all the new listeners and to all of the longtime listeners. Uh, if you haven't joined the, uh, if you haven't become a patron yet, if you haven't gone to patreon.com slash lines of liberty and signed up to support us to get uh, bonus content for as little as $5 per month, please consider doing that. Uh, ask yourself, is this extra content you're getting, this new Tuesday show, this Candidates of Liberty show, is this good content? Do you like it? Um, would you like more of it? Would you like us to maybe continue this show longer than, than just uh, just this time frame up until November? If you would, then please go to patreon.com slash lines of liberty and join the Lions of Liberty Pride. And that's all I got today, guys. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning.